Womanjeka, everyone. <clears throat> Welcome to Wem Pavilion. Uh, we pay our respects to the traditional owners of the land, the Bunurong people, and we acknowledge them as the traditional owners of this land. Um, I always pay my respects to any Aboriginal people here present tonight. Thank you all for coming. It's a very balmy evening. Um, my name's Jessie French. I'm the associate producer of M Pavilion. And we're here tonight. Um, Justine Clark, right next to me, has organised this as part of Parlour, uh, which is an organisation that puts women at the forefront of architecture. We're joined tonight by, sorry, just so I don't get anyone wrong, Shelley Penn, who is an architect, right at the end. Renate Howard, who is a social historian. Urbanist, Jane Jose in the middle. Karen Burns, uh, an architectural historian, and Justine Clark, who's an editor and researcher, <laughs> and the director of Parlour. Um, I will let these lovely ladies take it away tonight. Um, we are recording this talk, so if anyone missed it, you can tell your friends it will be available on the M Pavilion website. And I'll take it away. Thanks, Jessie. Um, so as Jesse mentioned, I'm involved in an organisation called PALA, which is primarily concerned with gender equity and architecture. This means we spend an awful lot of time talking to and about architects, and there are many here and we're happy about that, and about transforming our profession. This is really important. In our view, a more equitable architectural profession would also be more robust and better positioned to make a great to make the great buildings, spaces and places for everybody. But when the M Pavilion approached us about running an event here, we saw an opportunity to expand the conversation and do something else. We wanted to open up the discussion about how women have transformed our cities on many different roles, as grassroots activists as elected and, and elected representatives, as policy makers and public servants, as philanthropists and clients, as journalists, writers, and historians, and of course, also as architects, landscape architects, and planners. So this is a very timely discussion. Lucy Turnbull has been in the newspapers recently talking about the importance of female-friendly cities. For her, these kinds of cities would ensure that women and young children are able to fully participate in the life and economy of the city. Malcolm Turnbull is also making all the right noises about the importance of cities. We hope he does more than that. <laughs> and we have a federal minister of cities for the very first time, Jamie Briggs. So let's all lobby him. Um, but this evening, we're going to focus on the many ways in which women have already transformed our cities and on the lessons that we might take from this as we continue to work to make our cities better and more socially inclusive places. So tonight we've got a really fantastic panel to take us through these issues. All of, all of our panellists are active in our urban environments in different ways. Now, Jessie's already um, introduced them, but I'm just going to run through their bios a little bit more because I think it's... Um, when we put this together, we realised there were all these wonderful synergies and connections between these, these four women um, and also a great diversity of experience. And I think it's worth just reiterating some of that. So I'm going to start with Jane Jose in the middle in the white shirt. Jane, as Jessie said, is an urbanist and cultural activist. She has extensive experience in writing and shaping and informing policy about the built environment. She's spent much time in recent years researching and writing the book Places Women Make, and that's going to be published later in this year by later this year by Wakefield Press. 
Jane has been Deputy Lord Mayor of Adelaide, a newspaper com columnist and writer on urban life, and city strategist for the City of Sydney. She's now Chief Executive of the Sydney Community Foundation. Renata Howe in the middle in the fabulously parlour-coloured outfit. <laughs> Possibly... <coughs> Thank you, Karen. <laughs> so Renata Howe AM is a historian with a long-standing and very impressive commitment to urban and housing equality. She's written extensively on Australian social and religious history, and her most recent book, ta-da, is Trendyville, which is such a great title, The Battle for Australia's Inner Cities. And this is a, you should all go and buy it, you can get it from readings, we bought it yesterday. Um, a remarkable account of protest and gentrification in the 60s and 70s. Renata is Honorary Associate Professor at Deakin University. She's a committee member of the Cultural Heritage Centre Asia Pacific, a fellow of the Victorian Planning and Environmental Law Association, and a sessional member of Planning Panels Victoria. She's previously been a member of the Victorian Civil and Administrative Tribunal, as well as the Victorian Heritage Council. She's amazing. Yeah. We're very lucky to have her yes, here, we are. as with everybody else. <laughs> And um, Shelley, I mean, this is a lot. these are long, but I think it's important. Shelley is an architect and an advocate who works to improve public outcomes through roles within government and the private sector. Shelley is a very, very good architect. She's a very fine designer, but she has the best grip on policy, governance, and strategy of any architect I know. And she's remarkable, I think, for combining those two skills. Shelley is a Principal Fellow at the University of Melbourne, Adjunct Professor at Monash University and a member of both the Victorian Design Review Panel and the Capital City Design Review Panel in South Australia. She was Design Director in the Office of the New South Wales Government Architect. She was the inaugural Associate Victorian Government Architect. She's been Deputy Chair of the Heritage Council of Victoria, National President of the Australian Institute of Architects and Chair of the National Capital Authority. And she hasn't retired yet because she's been pre-selected for Labor for the Senate. So vote for Shelley. <laughs> and my, fr <coughs> my friend and comrade Karen Burns, one of Australia's finest architectural theorists and historians. She's my collaborator on Parlour, which she co-founded with me and, some, and a number of other people, and she came up with the name Parlour. Karen has a long-standing interest in feminist theory and activism. In 1990, she co-founded E1027, Women's Architecture Collaborative. Her writings on women in architecture have been widely published, and she teaches in the architecture program now at the University of Melbourne. Karen has been a really important mentor and inspiration for generations of architect, one generation, she's quite young, <laughs> of architecture students. She's not my friend anymore. <laughs> No, I love you even more. <laughs> so, between them, our panellists know a huge amount about transforming the city. But for us, tonight is the start of a conversation, not the end. We want to continue collecting accounts of women's actions and impact, and we can do this through Parlour. So if you've got a story or two that we don't talk about tonight, about women impacting the city, please send it to us. It could just be a photograph in two sentences, but send it to us, we can put it on Parlour, we can Instagram it, you know, we can change the world through Instagram. <laughs> Maybe. It's so easy. I know. <laughs> Why don't we do it? <laughs> so, to start the evening, to be more serious, I've asked each panellist to speak briefly about a particular instance in which women have transformed the city in some way. 
We do have images that accompany this, and obviously we have no projector, but they're all online on Parlour. And so there's some little cards that were on the seat, and the lovely Max has some in his hand that he can pass out. So you can get on your smartphone, get on your iPad, share with your neighbours, and there were pictures as well as words. If you don't need pictures, that's fine. Um, but, you know, do take a card because it's also got our website address on it. So these, really sh these are going to be very short presentations and they provide the ground for our panel discussion. And after we've had some discussion, we're going to open to the floor and we hope that there'll be this a very vibrant conversation amongst us all. So I'd like to ask Renata to start with, her, with an instance of, you know, massive transformation of the city through women. Go. <laughs> okay. Uh, thank you. I'm going to speak um, about the urban protest movements in the 1960s and 70s, especially in Melbourne, and the role of women in those protest movements, because I think they've still got a lot to say to us today. So uh, as a historian, I always hope we learn from history. Um, particularly, I want to start off with a book that inspired us all, <coughs> especially uh, the women involved in the Melbourne Residents Associations. And that was Jane Jacobs' book, The Death and Life of Great American Cities. Mm -hmm. uh, Jane Jacobs, I think, was published in the mid-1960s and it quickly came to Melbourne and was very influential. Jane Jacobs was famous for standing up to Robert Moses, who was the uh, very powerful New York uh, head of the... Uh, <laughs> equivalent of the Melbourne and Metropolitan Board of Works, yes. as it were. <laughs> and he had planned Crosstown Freeway, uh, which would take out most of the little parks in uh, her part of uh, uh, New York and also would destroy Greenwich Village with uh, massive redevelopment. So Jane Jacobs got a group of her um, friends together, mostly mothers, and they began by a uh, sitting at a park. Robert, Robert Moses dismissed them immediately. I'm not worried by a bunch of mothers, he said. <laughs> but in fact, she did stop those uh, Crosstown Freeway and she did change uh, and save Greenwich Village. Uh, so that was a very big inspiration, I think, for many of the women involved in the residence groups in Melbourne. So many of them who moved into the inner city at that time, who formed the basis of the groups, were in a way fleeing Melbourne suburbia. They wanted to come to a place where they could be more active, where they could influence their environment and where they could build communities. And they were also concerned to save the fabric of the inner city which they saw as so essential. So the women who, who um, banded together in the Carlton Association, the South Melbourne Association and so on, very much had this background and they're very important uh, at that time. Um, am I still in time? <laughs> Anyhow, if I go on and say from this very low base of involvement in the city, these women really did transform or contribute to the transform transformation of inner city Melbourne. They joined local government. Carolyn Hogg went on the first woman onto Collingwood Council. Uh, the old inner city councils were terrible places. They were all older men, very um, out of touch with their communities. 
Um, they established social planning offices at the municipal level and then they moved in, like Carolyn Hogg herself, into the Victorian state government, mainly through the Labor Party. And Caroline, of course, went on to be a minister in the Kane government and so on. They had tremendous influence in terms of the development of the city. So I just take them as a case study of what women can achieve at a certain time when the city's changing rapidly. And I think we're in just that time at the moment and women should be looking for ways to transform the city now. Fabulous. Let's go do it. <laughs> in 45 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> that, uh, thank you very much, Renata. <clears throat> I'm now going to um, hand to Karen Burns. So the image that I asked Justine to put up on Parlour is the rendering by Marion Marnie Griffin of their competition for the new federal capital of Australia. So Marion Marnie Griffin was an American architect married to Walter Burley Griffin and in 19, early 1911 they married and then they entered the international competition to design a federal capital for Australia. And I put the image online. I think there's two things I want to talk about. One, I want to talk about urban vision and I want to talk about networks. So the Griffins came out of a very radical urban milieu in Chicago. It's very interesting to read Renata's book and see that carry through with Brian and the... And remember that Obama has come out of Chicago. So it was a very interesting place. So they were involved in radical movements in Chicago, social movements around tax reform, women's suffrage and the peace movement. And they, were, they entered this competition. And if you look at the drawing online, you'll see this beautiful image of the landscape. But you'll also see at the apex of the design, it's not the House of Representatives and it's not the Senate. It's a palace for the people. So it's a big hall for the citizens of Australia to assemble in. So they have an American vision of a participatory democracy and of an active citizenry, which I think is worth remembering. But they also were lucky they had insider knowledge about what it might mean to design a landscape capital. In Chicago, they were friends with Miles Franklin, the fantastic expatriate Australian writer who wrote My Brilliant Career. If you haven't seen Gillian Armstrong's 1979 film based on the novel, please go and look at it online. And so Miles told them about the Australian landscape and they used that knowledge in their design of Canberra. Fortunately for us, they won the competition. They moved to Australia, but through their connections with Miles Franklin, they had entree into Melbourne's radical political and social circles. The Melbourne architecture profession at the time when they came here was pretty conservative. And here they were, they were supporters of women getting the vote. And not long after they got here, the First World War broke out and they were anti-war and they were anti-conscription and they were friends with people through Marion Griffin like Vita Goldstein, the first woman in the British Empire to try and stand as a member of parliament um, and through Vita they had connections with the suffrage movement in Melbourne and the peace movement and in fact one of a woman who was the president of the local branch of the International Women's League for Peace and Freedom was one of their clients and they built 
a house for her. So they had, the city wasn't just about its material fabric for the Griffins. The city is a place where you can organise and the material infrastructure and the organisations of the city provide a platform for agency. And in Melbourne, in terms of the peace movement, it was through the church and the trade union movement. Again, it was really interesting to read Renata's book and see how the church and the union movement continued to be important organisations and platforms for women to gain experience in organising and provide a structure. Um, and so I think for us it's also thinking about what organisations are available today to do that. And yes, I know you, I'm finished. No, you're perfect. Perfect timing. Everybody's perfect timing. <laughs> Shelley. Oh, really? Well, okay. I can go to Jane first if you'd like. Jane? Jane. <laughs> Thanks, Justine. Hello, everyone, and thank you for coming and sitting in this beautiful space with us. Um, I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land um, as custodians of this land and their ancestors. Um, and also Amanda Levette, the designer, a woman of this beautiful space. And more than that, Naomi Milgram, the Melbourne philanthropist who had the idea to risk building this and make it a place for ideas. Um, I've, I've gone off the topic already, but my book, Places Women Make, is a book in which, I, which will be out in December, published by Wakefield Press. It's a book in which I'm wanting to try and tell the untold stories of our urban heroines, um, women who have shaped Australian cities in many ways. And the women who've been talked about, I begin the book actually with a lovely quote from Jane Jacobs, which is, designing a dream city is easy. I'm not sure that Marion Marnie would have agreed with that, <laughs> but rebuilding a living city takes imagination. And I wanted to read that quote because um, though born in Melbourne and having had a political career in Adelaide, I live in Sydney. And in the last 15 years, I've worked very closely with Clover Moore as an independent Lord Mayor of Sydney and I'll talk a bit about her in a moment and her approach and what we can draw from that to the way women might be able to transform cities in the future. But first I want to talk about Wendy Whiteley and both of those women have really brought imagination. Um, when I first moved to Sydney um, from Adelaide where I had a garden and a dog it was a really strange transition not to have children in the house, nor to have a garden or a dog. And I realised that the public, I mean, I learned from first hand that the public spaces of our city are such treasures in our life. Um, and very early on, a friend who had a Labrador said, you can come and walk the dog. So I drove across the bridge and I, I got Tilly. I didn't really know where I was. I was sort of near Lavender Bay. And the dog sort of tore down one of those very steep stairs and, and then I wandered into what seemed a garden and um, I, it was a sort of magical garden. It felt a bit Balinese to me and I thought, well, I wonder what that is. So um, I asked my architect friends and they said, oh, that's the garden Wendy Whiteley's been making and it was before it was on Australian story, which some of you will have seen. Um, and so I wrote about this garden, which is quite a magical place, and have got to know Wendy a little bit. And the, the end of that story is that she 
made that garden really to deal with, over 20 years, to deal with the grief of her life, the loss of Brett and the loss of Arki. But um, what she says about the garden is, I loved making the garden, it's been a great gift to my life. It let me find myself again, and it's my gift I want to share with the public. Everyone needs a secret garden in their life, a place to quietly contemplate and dream. I dearly love this garden to be everyone's secret garden forever. Well, they were her words, and last week, um, when a book came out, actually just about that garden by Janet Hawley, um, the New South Wales government miraculously have given um, a 30-year lease because Wendy just claimed space. She claimed unused rail yards, a rubbish dump, and created a garden. Um, and I think that tells us something about how women imagine the city. They're willing to think laterally, to break rules. I, I have a whole chapter on secret gardens made by women who have claimed spaces, wanting to make them nurturing places. And turning to Clover more briefly, um, I worked with her from 2006 on her idea of a city of villages. And she'd surveyed all of the community in Sydney about what they needed. And what she, what she has administered is a rethinking of many of the blighted spaces across the city to turn them into places that um, in the most urban of cities people really need to use and um, one that I've written about at some length designed by Jane Irwin was the, the remaking of an abandoned Harborside Park which is now you know could be a model for for the remaking of a beautiful public space. Thank you, Jane. I, there's so much already that we can talk about, but let's pass to Shelley and then we can start our conversation. Thanks, Justine. Can you hear me okay? Um, so I think you asked for a specific instance, so I'm going to just not answer the question <laughs> <laughs> and say I think, um, I guess I'm particularly interested, there are lots of brilliant women who've done amazing things and we've had some fantastic examples, but I think women and and men, in fact, have done a lot of transforming of cities just by things that seem perhaps intangible or incidental but are really about the fundamentals of how we use places and the need for space and what, what spaces work, including appropriation of spaces. So I'm, I guess I'm thinking about um, something that I think recurs with women in um, architecture and in planning is often around education and there are some other examples of individuals that we can talk about but <clears throat> connections between childcare and kindergartens and schools, um, women often tend to use those spaces they might be imposed upon them in some ways in terms of where they're located, but often things will spring up around them in local communities, which are about women connecting um, ease of access, just you've got three different kids at different levels, um, but also women supporting women in other ways. Um, an isolated young mother is a very isolated person in modern day society now, and connections through co-location, for example, um, are often generated by women. But I, I guess I'm thinking of other kinds of appropriation of space like um, the Reclaim the Night marches. Hopefully some of you might have been on some of those in the 80s. I certainly was as a young woman that were amazing 
gestures and uh, demonstration of women saying this this space is ours and we're going to reclaim it, we're reclaiming the city, which you can sort of, I'm just rambling if you haven't noticed, <laughs> I'll just continue to do that. Um, you can sort of see in more tangible ways, if you like, um, through things like um, the City of Melbourne's um, postcode 3000, which brought residential um, living into the city in a, in a very major way. And that's been one of the most dramatic and talked about transformations of our city. That's not just women, that's about men. But I guess that's another point that I want to make. Um, I think there's a bit of a, a risk of sort of thinking of women as being somehow better at or more altruistic or, you know, any different thing in that sense than men. What, what we're different um, in and, and what we bring is a different experience and awareness. And so um, I think, I suspect we'll probably end up talking a lot about accessibility and inclusivity and spaces that really support people to have um, equitable access, social inclusion, um, which have been personal sort of motivations for me, but come through women's experience of the world, how to get a pram around a city, um, what does that tell me about what it must be like to be somebody in a wheelchair? How can I engender change to support those people? Um, might come from an experience of, that a woman might have that a man um, may not have had as uh, so much until recently, perhaps. Um, there's another group of women I want to talk about, as opposed to an individual, which is um, the many women, particularly in architecture, but I think it's probably true in many professions of, and, and all fields of women um, perhaps just one behind the hero at the front of the architectural practice so um, and the many women supporting and men supporting the the name or the identity that we associate with particular outcomes and that includes not just buildings but social outcomes planning outcomes a whole range of things and I think I guess I want to emphasize and draw attention to the fact that um, those outcomes come from co collaboration and input from many many people and we should always acknowledge that we always tend to look for heroes. It's easy to talk about individuals, but I think we need to really focus on the fact that many um, wonderful outcomes and, and brilliant solutions have come from collaborative efforts, and often the women are not recognised in, in um, how we look at those things and, and other things. But I'll just leave it at that <laughs> conversation. I think that's a perfect end to uh, segue into our into our conversation. So we're, what we're going to do is have um, some conversation amongst the panel um, before we open to the floor. I'm hoping it will be a kind of fairly fluid, engaged conversation. Um, I'm sure everybody's got a lot to say, but I did. I wanted to start by asking everybody to reflect on the idea of motivation, and I do. Everybody has already raised this in their very brief talks. And of course, as Shelley says, any group of women is as diverse a group as any other. Um, different experiences, different investments and different backgrounds. So I think we need to keep that in mind. But with that caveat in mind, I also want to ask if there are, if we can identify some shared motivations amongst some groups of some women, so it's all bracketed, um, um, and also ask people really to reflect, the, the, our panellists to reflect on their own motivations and whether they locate these within a, a broader shared agenda. Um, and I've got down here, I'm going to start with Shelley. Do you want to start again or shall I follow? <laughs> uh, yeah, I can continue <laughs> momentarily. Someone can butt in. Um, uh, well, my personal motivations to, say, get involved in the built environment came from being a young person who you know, saw beauty and was inspired by things in the world and thought, wouldn't that be fabulous to be able to share those things and to do something creative that contributed to um, 
other people's experience of those. And then I, I moved out of home at the age of 18 and moved to St Kilda and suddenly saw in a pretty raw way the inequity in, in places and, and have got a really strong understanding or a better understand, beginning of an understanding of how profoundly we're affected by the built environment. Um, and I mean at a really gut level. We can be inspired, we can de be depressed, we can feel happy. Um, we know that when we, we put people in small cells that are, have very limited light as a form of punishment, we know that that spatial isolation um, is really a punishment. Mm -hmm. In the same way, you know, we've seen historically wonderful churches and things that inspire and uplift, if you happen to believe in God. I don't, that's okay, they're still inspiring spaces. <laughs> um, but the point is we're, we're affected very profoundly and, and I, I kind of, I guess, through uh, learning and practicing saw more of how people are um, disadvantaged by things like the location of the school in an environment or the access to the train or their ability to, um, the inclusiveness of a space. This is a great example of a very inclusive, literally open space um, that invites invites us all in. There are spaces that are public but feel privatised, exclusive and, and leave people out. So for me, a, a strong motivation has been to try to um, really contribute to greater equity in um, public places. And I guess that was uh, then coming through the experience I mentioned before of having a, my first child in Sydney and trying to walk around the city with a yeah. pram, realising how um, limited I had been in my appreciation of what it would be like to be a person um, bound to wheels in a city um, because I suddenly thought it was extremely hard to get around. Yeah. So for me that was a realisation about again that need for diversity, that, that my experience limited my awareness. Um, I hadn't seen how hard it would be to just function as an individual with particular needs um, in a city, in a major city. And so that opened my eyes even further, I guess, and um, emphasised the need for diversity in experience and awareness. Um, so is that enough? That's great. <laughs> would anyone else like to follow on from Shelley talking about motivation? Uh, well, I think um, <clears throat> motivation in my case and Brian's was very much uh, the social divisions in, within the city. Um, we uh, returned from Chicago and Brian was appointed to the Fitzroy Methodist Church at the same time as the Housing Commission came up with the uh, wholesale demolition of large schools at both Carlton, Fitzroy and other inner city areas. Now we had seen this in Chicago and we had seen how the churches um, were trying to relate much more to these changes that were happening. They were trying to get out of the middle class cream brick churches into engaging with communities and also empowering communities. And this was very much a driver in our case. And um, we, along with uh, Andrew McCutcheon and Vivian McCutcheon, who had lived in the global areas of uh, Glasgow and had uh, learnt there a, a lot about re um, revitalising communities through the churches. Uh, this was uh, very much a driving force in our case. And I think it was, if you look at the inner city Melbourne in that period, you'll find that many of the inner city urban uh, action groups started in, in churches. So they were an important uh, uh, institution within those inner city communities too, which were being branded as slums, run down, hopeless communities. So uh, 
turning that around and fighting for the communities was very much part of our, our, um, our theological commitment. Um, three quick stories, perhaps, on motivation. Um, I asked that question to a number of the women who I interviewed, um, and particularly uh, to Clover Moore, you know, what, what led her into the public life that she's had for the last 20 years. And actually, she was a young mother with a pram with kids living in Redfern in Sydney 25, uh, 30 years ago, probably, or more. And the local, there wasn't a local park, there was a local um, area, playground, paved with concrete, painted green. And she was told when she asked for lawn to be planted that it was much easier to sweep up the broken glass if you had concrete. And um, she felt that wasn't good enough. And in a way, I could stop there. The rest is history. Um, although she did say when we sat down to talk, and she doesn't give a lot of interviews, she said, um, people always told me you can't do that. And I think that is a motivator for women, that women, look, I, I agree with Shelley, um, many great men have stood behind successful women and many great women have stood behind successful men. It's not about our skills or our gender, but women don't always have, haven't always had the same voice. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, um, my motivation for um, engaging with cities, and I call myself an urbanist because I'm not an architect or a planner. Um, I studied the humanities, which was a privilege. Um, but I decided in my early 30s that um, the city of Adelaide in the late, in 89, there was a boom, there was a boom everywhere, and that our built heritage was under threat and um, we share some history. Um, I felt that it was important because um, it offered people beauty and houses that they could afford, they could change. Um, the, many of the developers said they're just slums, these houses in the city. Well, they're quite valuable slums now <laughs> because they've been listed, protected and adapted. Um, so I was motivated in, by that, but um, I very quickly learnt that there are many voiceless people in our community and that architecture and the design of the city, the quality of how we can live in a city, um, so improves everybody's lives. Um, so in a sense that underlies my passion for architecture and design. I might just add, Winston McCackie I interviewed because um, when I was in public life in Adelaide, um, it was after she was Lord Mayor, but I was interested. Um, Lecky Ord, who, yeah. who you will know, she says was really responsible for introducing that heritage debate really strongly into the city of Melbourne. And although she followed her as Lord Mayor, they were the women that hired Rob Adams. And that's the kind of sort of influence that women can have, but the story never really gets told. Yes, I think I think perhaps any, anything we were, we're not saying, what we're saying is really about the voices that are missing, although they're there. Yeah, um, and, but I mean, her, yeah. the, the, what motivated her was um, commissioners were put in at one point. Mm. The council was sacked 
and I think she gathered 50 residents in, mm. in her back garden and um, they were outraged, they formed a resident group um, and I think they decided to sort of be a vigilante group to go and sit before the commissioners because mm. she tells this story that they were talking about ta ta demolishing quite a significant building in Collins Street and she was trying to make the point that the the integrity of the, the street mattered mm -hmm. and she painted one of her teeth out black and smiled. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just butt in? Because that reminds me of Joan Kerner who must yeah. be acknowledged, not just as, as you know, a premier, former premier of this state, but um, she, with the City of Melbourne, was responsible for writing a report, I think around 2000, that was about governance. It was about the structure of how, how the, in fact, the, de the direct election of the the mayor and deputy yep. mayor, I think, and um, the constitution of the council. But that, that came from a vision that she had, I believe I've read, about the capital city as a world-class capital city. So she had this vision that was really powerful that led to her, with, with two others, I think, they wrote this report, which then set in train the way the council operates now and all the amazing things the city has done. We've got a, yeah. an amazing city. Yeah. And that model was adopted by others. So I think you can't underestimate the power of governance and for, for good and bad in no, terms policy, of the outcomes. Policy matters exactly. yeah, <laughs> enormously. Totally. And I'm trying to say that in my book, but in a way that it will amuse people. <laughs> <laughs> now we have the, our comedian. <laughs> I, think, um, I think people have really deep and abiding physical and emotional relations to place. Yeah. And I don't think that caring about the specific corner of your neighbourhood is entirely self-interest. I think we're powerfully connected into our local communities. If you have the good fortune to live in a strong local community, you might be reconnected again through children's schools and sports or just going to the shops or, you know, I talk to my neighbours about what we're planting on the neighbour strip and there's a sense of connection and that doesn't rule out feeling broader international connections or connections about the city but feeling really connected to your local corner of the world and caring about it. And in my corner of the world, the second great corner of Melbourne I've lived in, East Brunswick, before it was Fitzroy, people, uh, one of our friends stood as the um, local Greens member last year and lots of people got involved in the campaign. And there's a sense that we know each other um, and the connections run through personal relationships but up to a broader level to include other people in the community. And I think it's one of the reasons that women's stories are so active in those local communities because they're often networks women are involved in. Mm. And, you know, you, you walk to school every morning, so you spend 20 minutes walking through your neighbourhood. You have that... You reconnect with the physicality of your place every day. Yeah. Um, it's really powerful. Which, which is why it's so devastating when you see suburbs that are planned with no... Um, footpaths, for example. Yeah. yeah. You know, and we have many of them in our city that mm. are designed to make it... They're reliant on cars. There's just a total misunderstanding about how people connect and relate within yeah. a community and how actually you make streets safe yeah. by walking in them and engaging with people. And I think you're right. Women... I, I do think, uh, as Justine has said, a lot of this isn't about gender. A no. lot of it's just about people. Yeah. But I think women are still primarily at the forefront and have been for a long time of life in the local community. Um, women are still the primary carers most of the time and are still living those those lives in their local community. And so they feel 
um, and are um, in different ways, often subtle, um, more able to influence the, the way those spaces work and are appropriated. I think the walking thing is really important because that's where you have incidental conversations with people. Yeah. Say hello, you talk about their garden, or you just say hello. And those are all sort of brief ways that you affirm connections to people that you might not know very well. One of the things that Jane Jacobs wrote about a lot and, to, and is known for is saying that small things matter, small plans matter. Yeah. You know, she was scorned for saying she didn't like big plans because they were going to <laughs> demolish the whole Greenwich Village. But she said small plans matter. And I think that is a little bit of a female view that an, a lot of good small things add up to a whole. Um, I remember when Clover Moore began the process of thoroughly remaking small parks, beautifying streets, changing, you know, right across the city of Sydney, um, the places where people lived, a leading architect said to me, but she's sort of just doing tatting, isn't she? It's like knitting. <laughs> it's the small things. You name names. <laughs> I'm not naming names, but... Um, you know, the small things that women notice mm. can add up to very real changes mm, in people's lives, like yeah. footpaths that you can push a wheelchair yeah. along. And Jane Jacobs really did emphasise that, that the, the street, street frontages, the uh, local environment was mm. tremendously important. And she also had the slogan, yes, I can. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Renata. You, Renata was responsible for finding and giving um, and arranging us access to the fantastic image that we used, we've used in the promotion of this, of um, Daisy Croft protesting at Brooks Crescent. Um, and, and I'm very interested in, in the kind of questions of both strategy and tactics and how one affects change. So um, as an elected member, as a public servant, as an individual, we, we all have very, there are very different routes to making change happen. And I wonder, Renata, if you might tell us a little bit more about that picture and about Daisy. Oh. It's a perfect name. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, um, <clears throat> the picture, we've, we've been talking a lot about the uh, younger activists, women activists, but um, in, in the whole communities uh, of women uh, can be engaged in, in these struggles. And in the case of the Brooks Crescent area, which was an area of uh, North Fitzroy, which the Housing Commission had uh, designated for high-rise development, and um, where uh, the local community uh, there really got themselves together to, to oppose uh, this development. And um, Daisy Crofts was an older member of that community. We call her perhaps uh, because it was mostly a migrant uh, community at that time, mainly Italians and Greeks, uh, uh, we, we called Daisy an old Australian. So she was, was an older Australian resident there. But she and her group got together, and as you can see in that photograph, they had marvellous hats. Uh, and um, they, um, they really used some very uh, excellent methods of opposing the Brooks Crescent development. They went out, for instance, to the suburbs and um, they demonstrated in front of the uh, Minister for Housing's house. Uh, uh, they, uh, um, uh, there's this famous picture which the age has as one of its um, 
most, most uh, telling pictures of the period, which is Daisy standing in front of her single-fronted house with the sign which we'd all had printed, this house not for sale to the Housing Commission, and she's standing there in front of it with a gun. And, um, <laughs> That became, Shotgun. Yes, I, I, I couldn't send it to put on the front because it's now copyrighted by the age, etc., etc. But it does really show... It was vitriolic. It was yeah. really vitriolic. Yeah. Yes, it really did um, capture yeah. people's feelings about how strongly they had. And that Brooks Crescent um, demonstration and fight uh, actually did... That was the last effort of the Housing Commission to redevelop an area. So after that, they went into uh, rebuilding areas and more uh, community-focused redevelopment. So it was quite a significant mm. fight. And um, yes, Daisy was a leader. <laughs> Anyone else want to talk about, strat about strategy and tactic, perhaps, um, perhaps not from the grassroots, but from the, you know, well, it's it usually is from the grassroots, though, I think. Mm. Well, but, but people, these, people are these, in the grassroots and then they move battles. into other positions. Um, I wrote, I mean, I was, I'm surprised how many of the younger women urban planners and architects that intersected in my life that they don't know stories like um, Kelly's Bush, which is um, the harbour on beautiful Sydney Harbour, the Headland Bush that remains. In 1971, A.V. Jennings wanted to build, um, they're a housing developer, I don't know if they still exist, but they wanted to build a few thousand houses on the harbour foreshore bush. And the battlers for Kelly's, they became known as the battlers for Kelly's bush, but they were the first green bands. And they were conservative women um, housewives. Um, who said, no, this is not going to happen to our place. And um, it was the beginning of green bands. I guess it was after Jane Jacobs in New York that that happened. But I guess the message for, for young people here and one that I really believe is you, you can't wait for governments to do the right thing for you. You do need to engage in what they're talking about in the major remaking of our cities that has to happen. But you can influence that now. At least now, community consultation opportunities are really there. Um, mm. Those women just did it themselves around the kitchen table. Um, I also wrote about the, the, um, some of those marvellous wharfs in Sydney on Hickston Road and particularly in Woolloomooloo um, there's, there's a wonderful wharf that was to be demolished. Um, in fact, a woman planner, Joan Masterman, had the brilliant idea of convincing the Minister for Works that it should stay because it honoured the tradesmanship of the men who had built the building. So it was preserved. So you use whatever it takes. I think... Um I think probably since the early 1960s there's been a rapidly growing consciousness about the usefulness of media as a way of promoting yeah. ideas and I think that's why direct action became such a powerful protest method because it is one of those sort of media spectacle moments. I'm very fond of women chaining themselves to things. <laughs> I think as an architectural historian, I love the idea of people using buildings for the purpose for which they were not intended. 
So buildings are really useful things to chain yourself to because it's very, it's much more complex to get unchained from a building. So Dustin's put up a fantastic image of Zelda Deprano, um, who worked at the Meat Workers Union and they used it as a test case for equal pay for women in 1969. She got fed up with the discussions at the arbitration commission and she chained herself to the doors of the Commonwealth Building in Spring Street and that photo's on the parlour site. But historically in the 20th century, the suffragettes chained themselves to railings. There's a couple of amazing women who chained themselves to a public bar in a hotel in Queensland. In the 60s, they were protesting that they weren't allowed to drink in the public bar and they had to go to the ladies' lounge. So direct action isn't just about a, um, a particular mode, but it's also realising the media potential, how you visually frame what you do and how you tell a story about what you do. And yeah. I think that's a really important activist tactic. It's not so much the in-your-face, I'm going to speak truth to power, but it's about what kind of story can I can we tell about this? What kind of visual can we give people? Yeah, it's often just changing the story to the right story. Mm -hmm. I'll add to that by... Um, going slightly off on a tangent again. But um, I think Karen's point earlier, that point there, but also the one about how we connect to, to place and the, the sense of meaning, and it's really a profound gut connection and because it's about memory and, you know, place as the backdrop to in all of our experiences, whether they're banal, everyday or, or really profound. Mm -hmm. So things like I mentioned the reclaim, the night marches, were significant and I believe transformative because they changed, they influenced the way we see. I walked across that bridge, you know, 30 years ago, reclaiming the night with a lot of brilliant women. And there have been a lot of marches down there, frivolous ones and serious ones and all sorts of things. And that says something about the role of Swanson Street in our city, how we see our city, the role of activism in the city. They, it says this is a space we can use. It might have got harder in recent years as, you know, marches are kind of more and more contained. but. That's partly about how we understand and value place and space. And, and I guess I was going to say something else which I've forgotten, mm. but <laughs> it's I think all of that is really significant in terms of um, how we relate to and then therefore use our cities and our. Yes. And it's just it's not the the planning. I mean, the Hoddle Grid is, is incredibly significant in terms of how we understand and use our city but also those kinds of movements, the way we appropriate space. And I think that actually comes through in terms of um, really good designers, really good planners, really good architects, really good placemakers understand people because they make places that people will respond to and occupy and work within and want to be part of. The ones that are awful are the ones that people don't want to be in because they don't actually, the places aren't responding to the people and they end up moving on, they get changed. They're not sustainable. Mm. I know. I talk. I talk about cities uh, as the playrooms of, of our lives. Mm. In a way, places that hold our memories, like your march, yeah. and and they hold the promise of the future as well, mm. if they're good places. Oh, which so they're. Um, it's why they're so important. Because I'm old enough to have children who are thirty, and the next generation won't necessarily have a back garden and their own house. Um, you know, my son sent me a, a, an article from The Economist today with a hashtag, I don't have a million, and which is a movement in Canada for young people who can't afford to buy houses. 
And so the quality of, of the living room of the city is so important for the future. And you've just reminded me of what I was going to say. Can I just say it? That uh, all of this is connected to the idea of nimbyism, of, of the way people respond to um, development proposals. The people... The reason people respond so violently often, and you've given great examples of, and thank God they've responded in those ways, there are examples where the response maybe isn't so constructive, but comes from the deep connection to place. It comes from a deep value. The thing is, people can't always articulate it, and often the way we engage with communities on the development side is not really um, valuing and appreciating the way places matter to people. And so there's a kind of lack of nuance in how we engage with people and so no wonder people get up and, and yell and cry we don't want this development sometimes the development could be quite good but what there is a sense of loss of all of those connections so and it, it's often hard to translate what people yeah. say because they're not trained in the design of cities they don't necessarily have the language you know they don't want to use the language they don't want that you know when we did the village plans oh, they're not empowered to no to I mean but they they'll comment and say really strong and clear things we did the changes in the inner part of Sydney by having those messages and walking around with landscape architects, with Bridget Smythe. She and I walked down the lanes and said, this is what they're saying, this is what they mean, this is what has to be changed and yeah. designed. But it's a hard connect yeah. to make. Yeah. I think um, one of the things too is that maybe that connection to place is a fundamental part of Australia, whether it's the city or the country. If you think about the importance of country for first Australians and the gardens in Melbourne, all the public gardens which have been significant sites of assembly and protest, they are all places that were cherished by the custodians of the land. They're all Wurundjeri or Bunawarrung land, all of these yeah. gardens. So there's a kind of, continuity. despite all the terrible fractures, violence, etc., there's a continuity about the valuing and the recognition of a shared sense of the importance of particular sites in Melbourne. So that place can also be something maybe that can join us together, that can connect us as people, despite various kinds of political, and in this case, racial fault lines. One of the things when, when Karen and I were talking about what we would do with this event, one of the things that, that Karen spoke about was the way that knowledge is transferred. So the way that, that um, people, women, um, gain experience in one particular location. It might be the pro a protest movement, it might be an activist organisation, it might be the school council. Um, and then take that experience and skills and move into other roles. And so I think um, I absolutely agree with everybody that you know, we, activism is you know is, is is absolutely vital to the way we shape our cities. But there are also very many very you know highly professional women op operating in very professional roles and government roles who are also playing playing important roles. And some of those people have come up through a kind of um, activist um, pathway. Some of them have come from other pathways. But I think that idea of transferring skills and knowledge and um, organisations becoming um, training grounds but also platforms to, to go other places. And I wondered, Karen, if you want to talk any more about that. <laughs> uh, or if anyone else does. <laughs> uh, well, I, th I think it is true. <clears throat> we need to move on from the community-based issues 
uh, to look at the more structural issues in mm. decision making. And here women um, have made quite significant advances. Uh, uh, women architects are very much more represented now in government departments. Women planners are quite numerous at local government level and in state departments. Uh, if you look across the board, women now, women lawyers, the planning bar uh, has quite a, a, a group of women lawyers too. So we now really have to change our language somewhat and our expectations. And um, I think um, uh, we should perhaps uh, focus a bit more on looking at what these women can achieve. Uh, uh, Shelley and myself, I think, you know, have been very good at joining things and getting involved. Um, but I think we should try and make uh, greater efforts to convince those women uh, that they have a role too in this um, uh, influencing uh, planning and urban, our urban life. And the other issue I would raise too for the future is that now Sally, I'm sorry, you also made mention of the uh, outer suburban areas. Now this is where most women, or a lot of women, are now living, not in the inner suburbs or the middle suburbs, uh, but in the outer suburbs uh, of Melbourne, which is growing so quickly. And um, of course also the diversity of the population there is also yeah. an issue. So. If we're talking about women in the city, we've got some new issues there that have to be picked up and considered. Mm, absolutely. Well, it, it's been said that our suburbs are broken by the Grattan Institute, and that's the outer suburbs that you're mm. talking about. And um, that is where the focus needs to be. The inner cities are getting better. Mm. Um, but that's the great challenge. I would like to disagree a bit. I think while women have been quite um, solidly in planning and influencing things, um, also landscape architecture, of course, women have grabbed that space um, for centuries. I think in architecture, there are still very, very, very few women who have their hand on the pen of design of the major places in Australian cities. And I'd love that to be more equal because women will have much to contribute, yeah. and it will be. I think that's right. I was um, actually thinking, reflecting earlier today on the kind of a family tree I'm, I'm in, of architecture within, you know, my in Melbourne in particular. There's a very strong sense of family tree within architecture generally, of gender, regardless of gender, of kind of people like Kevin Balland and Peter McIntyre and so on and who worked for them and then who worked for those people and who worked for those people. You can map a tree. It's happening with women as well but for me there were probably three or four women generation or so ahead of me who were sort of shining lights who were either co-directors of practices or ran their own practices, not many at all. And then there's my generation, there are a few more of us and then there's a generation or two, um, generation or two, it's true, below. <laughs> Below. Yeah. And in fact, I was fortunate to have lunch with the second in a series of lunches with um, a group of these young women who are running their own practices um, last Friday, which is so inspiring. And they are fantastic practitioners, diverse, you know, better at this, better at that, whatever. They're doing their thing. What was interesting was what dominated the conversation was juggling the kids, yeah. um, looking after your staff, um, getting that job totally about 
fabulous outcomes and their dedication to those outcomes, but also their dedication to managing um, and supporting their staff and their children. And I thought that was quite interesting. It's not, um, I've got many male architect friends who are absolutely committed fathers and adore their children and all of that sort of stuff, but there's a different preoccupation yeah. and I think that leads to a different way of practising and I don't know whether it's going to lead to different kinds of outcomes, um, but I think that family tree is important and, and the need to support those young practitioners um, mm. is also really critical. Mm. And I think the, I mean, the other, I think that in some ways that goes hand in hand with a, a comment that was made earlier about the the kind of forgetting and the, the loss of knowledge of those who've gone before, um, that there have been, has been a lot of work, a lot of um, people doing very interesting things that are kind of not really part of the communal stories of our cities. And I think people like Renata and, you know, actually all of you are, are busy writing people into those stories, writing, writing these other stories. But I, one of the questions I think is, is how do we, um, how do we make that knowledge more available? How do we learn from it and where do we go now? And, um, and maybe I'll just ask everyone to quickly respond and then we'll open to the floor because we're running through. So Dr. Burns. Um. A lot of what we're talking about is intangible heritage. Yeah. It's about particular events, occupations and uses rather than sort of formal business fabric. And we live in a fantastic time. We can have digital archive. One day, you'll just be able to walk around with your smartphone and then you'll be in a space and you'll be able to have access to those other stories of the place. And so I think that's going to be a great step forward. Well, I hope that conversations like this and, and my writing and your writing will actually inspire young women architects to think they can be the hero architect of a public place in their city. You know, they can be the first Australian woman to get the gold medal for architecture. For, that's still open. No, no, Brit got, Brit's had it. Yes, but that was with a husband. Yeah. And, I mean, there have been two gold medals mm. for women, but with their husbands. A woman alone has not done that yet. So um, there's a challenge to you young architects, I think. <laughs> she probably wouldn't be there. acting alone. And that yeah. might be one of the problems with the gold medal system. There's a whole team, a collaboration behind No one them. acts alone. Yeah, yeah. no one acts alone. <laughs> well, I, I think I've already indicated where I think um, uh, it's important to act in the future. And that, as mm. I say, is in... Um, <clears throat> areas where women professionals have, um, could, could have more influence than perhaps they're having at the moment, and Shelley's talked about that. And also, I think, uh, looking at the city as it is now and identifying areas where uh, there is a need uh, for, uh, as I say, particularly in the outer suburbs, there are huge needs there, which it would be good if the women could, women's movement, if yeah. there still is one, uh, could galvanise and make a, um, a priority. I'm sure we could yeah. do yeah. great things. Mm. Um, I'm not sure I remember what the question is, but... <laughs> what do we need to That's remember right. and what should we I do? Kind of do know. No, I think, um, I think it's really about kind of everything that everyone's just said, but for me, perhaps mostly, I'm interested in inspiring um, and helping younger uh women coming through in whatever field to be empowered and to assume the power yeah. to do stuff and to feel that they have that capability. I, I do think, we haven't talked about some of the nitty gritty gender stuff like um, 
subconscious bias and so on that we all as women and men participate in and Paula has talked a lot about and it's on their website and read about it that we all participate in this sense that we're perhaps not as good or we let self-doubt knock us out a bit earlier than the guys do sometimes or that we um, perhaps just undervalue we don't really ask for as much or, or really think we're as worth it and I think helping women young women particularly to see to basically kick that over and say, no, I can do it. And look, I, you know, just introduced us all. I had some ground sounding former titles and things. In each of those, I felt just like a person who was thinking, what the hell am I going to do in this? Yeah. And, <laughs> and I put on, I'm, you know, I'm going to get sprung for acting like an adult. And I would put on my jacket and kind of think, I'm going <laughs> to assume the mantle. That. What would the chair of the National Capital Authority say in response to this? And that's what I would do. And I think. Strategies like that are really useful, and I think women perhaps need them more than men. Um, so I think telling the story so women, young women can see what other women have done before them, um, exposing the challenges and being honest about the difficulties, um, and inspiring them to go for it and believe yeah. in what they can do. That, that's what I think we need yeah. to do. Excellent. I think it's a very good place to um, turn to you all. Um, now, we, because we're recording this, we would like if you have a question or a comment to speak into the microphone, which I have here. So, um, does anybody someone, like to? Is someone going to take it around? Great. So here's Max to take it around. Who would like? You can. Who wants to start? I told you two commenting at the front. If no one else has, <laughs> I'm going to throw to you two. Anyone got comments or questions? like being in a comedy club audience so right. if you're seen talking okay you can you yeah. take that over there to those two <laughs> don't sit in the front row <laughs> um i'm maybe quite interested in um i think it's the city of vienna has been through kind of a, a planning process and I, they've called it kind of gender mainstreaming, I think. I'm not quite sure whether that's necessarily the right term for it um, or, you know, whether you want to title it that. But I was wondering um, if you think there's ways that we, any of you, think there's ways that we might be able to bring um, things like that into Australian cities. I'm sure the Austrians will have a fabulous German word for gender mainstreaming. <laughs> um, I actually just read today that the Mercer Index for Livable Cities has just put Vienna as number one. So if you join those two things, it's quite a nice idea. Um, I think that's what this conversation's about, actually, gender mainstreaming. And I do think that young women do feel that they're in the mainstream, and they are. It's kind of what happens later with the challenges of children and family life. That, that some somehow um, means that women don't always have as much influence on the decision making. What we, yeah, I think what all of us are saying, we're, an equ we're equal in the world. We must be equal in the making of cities. I think you just touched on the most transformative change in a way, which is a social cultural one, which is as it's about value. As more women assume more power, whether it says private professionals or within government or just within the local communities, whatever, the fact that they're having to juggle often children, not all women have children or want children, but yeah. many do, changes. So the things focus. like flexible workplaces now become a catch cry and something that some of the big 
really big companies are t- adopting and saying we're we're going to aim for you know 80% flexible, um, that kind of thing. So that suddenly there's a bit of a well not suddenly gradually there's a shift in yeah. culture and social value, and I think that is a massive transformation that we've only just yeah. started, yeah. which will be very interesting to see. I think a synonym for gender mainstreaming is diversity. Yeah. You know, once you recognise that there's there's not just an uh, one group that's constructing the world. But the world is made up of yeah. different groups with perhaps different needs or the different questions they ask. And that making place, particularly in the city, can sometimes be a struggle. It doesn't have to be. But if you think about the discourse that's really emerged in North America in the last year and a half around race mm. in the inner city and policing, which is also about diversity. And I think that huge shift from the 50s to now between having a kind of singular monocultural vision of the world to having a sense that the, the big word that we could put gender into uh, as well is diversity. And now that we have a broad public discourse about the importance of social inclusion yeah. and social cohesion and what the basis of a civic civil society is. And that for me is a huge mainstreaming of gender issue. But behind that is equality and discrimination. Absolutely. And I mean, I now, I've, I've in, at one level, I've left the physical urban world and I run Sydney's Community Foundation and most of our granting is to Western Sydney and, and many of the kids that we support into education programs did arrive on boats or have been on Villawood. We've still got a very long way to go with fundamental equality and diversity, but I hope that mainstreaming for men and women, we like to think that the social justice of that is already with us. <laughs> Anyone else? Any other comments? You're a very quiet crowd. Oh, here's the direct action that anyone would like yeah. to engage in. And if you want to chain yourself to a building with Karen, yeah. put your hand up. <laughs> Um, thank you for that. That was really interesting. Um, I'm just back from Stockholm where women have a year's paid maternity leave mm. and Stockholm's so calm and babies and mums are everywhere and the city just seems set up for them. And I'm so interested in how government policy seemingly so unrelated to urban space has such an impact on urban space. So I'm just wondering your thoughts on that. Can I just answer that? Because yeah. I wanted to say this before, and I this is just an example locally where that has happened in a different way, which is, I mean, one example, again, back to Joan Kerner, who was always motivated by education, and that really was her entry into politics, as I understand it. But before she was... Well, sorry, part of that came from, um, well, as I say, passion for equity, social equity and education, and she was really responsible for bringing um, disabled children into mainstream education, so saying why are they off being out there, they, they're just part of mainstream education. What that meant was those that infrastructure had to accommodate those people. And we're now in a situation where it's legislated over the last 20 or so years, that's become standard, it's legislation, which means there's a cultural shift which says it's natural and we assume, of course, places should be inclusive, it's legislation that they be inclusive that there's a cultural change that comes with that. So that's from one, really, I, I praise Joan for that, really fighting for a view, of, and that was based on a view about education um, and equity in education, which has transformed some assumptions we have about cities. It wasn't just Joan, but a big part of it. 
So I think it's happening all the time and we're just not always aware of it. And I think we've all in various ways been talking about the importance of policy and maybe one of the questions for the Australian public sphere is how we have a kind of calm, sophisticated um, discussion about complex issues that yeah. isn't some kind of polarised shouting match and how we develop a sophisticated culture around complex issues. And then maybe we could have um, public conversations about policy. That Which is why we need that more nuanced discussion about development. So sustainability, not, not, you know, stopping urban sprawl is something that has to happen right now here. And that requires densification and intensification of suburbs everywhere. Doing it well is the key it's to... And communicating about that well, not assuming people won't get it, empowering them to talk about what matters about place so that you can have a more nuanced discussion yeah. and get more nuanced outcomes that are appropriate and varied depending on their context. And That's getting, the way to do that. Sorry, and getting people committed to long-term planning visions, not the three-year election cycle. Like, we need a 30-year plan for Melbourne. But so people have to get out of their political boxes and have another kind of conversation. Can I come back to your question about the year's maternity leave in Stockholm? Because I think that's a really interesting policy issue that just has kind of fallen to the floor in Australia. I mean, Abbott was elected, there was going to be a paid maternity scheme, there were lots of issues with that and I won't go into the detail. But I think it is really important to recognise that young, young women, we invest lots in education through school, through university, through TAFE training, and there'll be a period when women have children for five years, which takes them, puts their career a bit like that, more than like that. And that can be recognised with time out. And the value is they will be keen to come back. Um, I, I don't know why the economics of that isn't part of some new thinking about Australia so women can contribute, have kids, but contribute in their careers more equally. Thanks. Just um, following on from that maternity leave issue, I had, when I, in my formative years, um, when I was 21, I lived in Copenhagen, and there they have paid paternity leave. And when I explained that we didn't have such a thing in Australia, my fellow students were so surprised, and they're like, how can you ever have equality if you don't have paid paternity leave? And also with that, in the Netherlands, um, it's quite common for both men and women to work four days a week so that then you have you kind of share the load in that way and I'm wondering if this is something that we can push for a bit more in Australia rather than women always being the childcare providers. Well I think it's just going to come isn't it by the next generation yeah. who, of young men and women like you who will want the four days you know sharing. Um, well, the research tells us that there's been a struggle going on for quite a long time, since the 80s, about gender roles and caring roles, um, because lots of industries and businesses have a preference for what they see as the full-time worker who 
increasingly now is someone who overworks. So it's also about the demands of work. Um, I know many, many men from their 20s to their 50s who really want to be active parents. And now the research from North America is telling us that the most stigmatised group in workplaces around parenting is men because of the social expectation that they be the breadwinner and not what's known as the sort of um, committed, active father. So um, I think there are other fault lines that aren't as simple as being about gender, but about demands of work and overwork in the contemporary world and, um, and how people balance just wanting to have a life, really, with all the other things. I think one of the... Um, when we talk about this, one of the things... We certainly need to move towards a situation like that. I couldn't agree more. I'm not convinced it's just going to come. I mean, I've also been hearing from young women lately who tell me the, the um, sexism they face in the workplace is coming from their young colleagues, not necessarily older men. So I'm not sure it's all fixed yet. Um, but I think we also, when we're kind of trying to develop solutions and strategies and policies, we need to be moving towards that situation, but also at the same time acknowledging that at the moment in Australia, um, some very high percentage, which escapes me, like, I don't know, 90% or something, of primary care is a woman. So that's the situation we're in. We don't want, you know, we would want to move from that situation, but to move from that situation, we need to be both um, finding strategies and solutions to help those women to engage whatever they want to engage in, and at the same time trying to move towards a more equitable thing. I think they're slightly different situations. I think they involve slightly different approaches, but they both need to be in play all the time. And it needs to be conscious. We shouldn't just assume there's going to be historical momentum around it because this has been an issue that's been on the table yeah. for 45 years. So we need lots of research and talking and strategies and political intervention. We must be... Questions. Okay, we have another question over here. Hi there. Just a question for Renata. Um, I'm interested in Renata in how you think we can go about um, addressing the uh, problems in the outer suburbs and where where do we start? Um, and I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit more. If you haven't covered it in your book. <laughs> yes, well, uh, clearly, as, as Shelley has mentioned, uh, the issues of, and I think this is very much part two of uh, Lucy Turnbull's uh, Cities Conference, isn't yeah. it? That um, the emphasis needs to be on accessibility in cities, that you have to have very good public transport yeah. uh, and... Um, <clears throat> methods of you can't isolate the outer suburbs yeah. in the way that they have been now and this has to be addressed through infrastructure and through social planning through design of communities and so on uh, I think that's that's certainly the direction that the um, Lucy Turnbull city's future is taking but you might be able to add a bit more to that well I think connection and transport's actually yeah. quite a fundamental um, one of the problems is the inheritance of the 70s is those cul-de-sac 
um, designed little sort of villages of public housing yes, of exactly. two or three thousand houses that people, they don't have a bus to it, they're mm. outside Campbelltown in Sydney, which is a centre of 400,000, and they're sort of stuck, and there's one high school. Mm. So I think um, it will be recognising those large regional, that they become regional centres, mm. like Parramatta um, is in Sydney, and that Parramatta's um, about to get a new art, art museum, part of the powerhouse, the social um, history museum, and there's there's a lot of investment into the arts and culture. It's by opening the door into the life that people have had in the centre of the city and also making connections to it. I actually think it's got to happen at um, its government level. I mean, yeah. there has been, there is so much, Jane Jacobs was talking about walkable cities and the cul-de-sacs, Jane's talking about you know, there are plans, there are suburbs in Melbourne and probably many other Australian cities where the back of a house to the back of another house, if you just could walk through from there to there, you'd be at the school in five minutes, but there's no way through. So instead you've got to walk down there, around there, mm. down the highway, which is got no footpath, yeah. and then back, and it takes you an hour to get to school. The whole idea, all that research is, we know that stuff, all those plans are there. Why are they not implemented? And I think the critical thing is and recognition of the impact of those places have on people's lives in a day-to-day -day sense, including access to work. That's another whole massive planning issue. But, um, I mean, thank God we've actually got a Prime Minister who I, I think kind of understands it. I'd say Labor's been strong on it for a long time and has recognised it for a long time. And I try not to get too into that, but, you know, there's an excellent track record with um, Labor Prime Ministers um, in understanding and supporting city-wide um, yeah. changes that help social equity, social accessibility. We do have, thank goodness, in, in Malcolm, I think, someone who understands that, and he's, he's demonstrated straight away through his portfolio changes. But that's where it's got to happen. There's got to be a recognition. Look, I went to a talk recently by a very eminent um, economics practice um, that they set up, and they had eminent individuals speaking who are expert in planning, infrastructure, and government procurement, or something like that. And there was still talk about infrastructure, where are we going to put yeah. the roads and the trains? And then there was talk about land use planning. Mm. And num a number of us got up and they said, hang on, talk about them together, they belong together. Yeah. And it still got back to this idea that, no, if we put the infrastructure down, the rest will flow. And the soft So we're still stuck in that kind of thinking. That is the critical problem. We have to I, be more networked and, in our And budget. the soft infrastructure yeah. also has to be there. All part of the same. We have to be much more holistic. Mm. We haven't discussed in an integrated way. Yeah. We haven't discussed the development industry, <coughs> and I think um, yes, we could be here all night. <laughs> However, uh, it just just to take a, a small example or two examples really on the outer suburbs. If you look at the, the big developers there, Villa Wood, say uh, there are no women involved in the design of those uh, houses and the way that they're set out at all. Um, that's my impression. Anyway.